Welcome to Out in the Bay, queer radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen. This week, the life and accomplishments of the queer civil rights trailblazer you've probably never heard of. My name is Polly Murray, and my field of concentration has been human rights. My whole personal history has been a struggle to meet standards of excellence in a society which has been dominated by the ideas that blacks were inherently inferior to whites and women were inherently inferior to men. That's Polly Murray, activist, lawyer, poet, and priest, black and queer, Dr. Anna Pauline Murray. Polly Murray, as they were known, lived a life of firsts, Yet their extraordinary achievements remain largely unknown, a historical omission directors Julie Cohen and Betsy West aim to correct with their Amazon original documentary, My Name is Polly Murray. Described as ahead of their time, Murray fought for racial and gender equality, laying the foundation for Brown versus Board of Education, the 1954 U.S. Supreme Court decision that outlawed racial segregation in public schools and other landmark civil rights cases, including last year's historic U.S. Supreme Court decision to extend the protections of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to LGBTQ employees. This 2020 ruling made it illegal to fire anyone for sexual orientation or gender identity all across the United States, finally. But despite their contributions to the gender equality movement, Murray had a lifelong struggle with their own gender identity and sexuality. You may note that in this introduction, I've used they, them pronouns when referring to Murray, but in the documentary, and perhaps in our discussion, you will hear she, her, and they, them. More about that later. Here with me to discuss Polly Murray's remarkable life are Julie Cohen, director of My Name is Polly Murray and of RBG, the 2018 Oscar-nominated documentary about the late U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Dolores Chandler, former coordinator at the Polly Murray Center for History and Social Justice in Durham, North Carolina. Chandler is also founder and principal consultant of Build from the Heart, a consulting agency focused on helping organizations achieve their missions by centering racial and gender equity. Julie Cohen and Dolores Chandler, thanks for joining us here out in the Bay. Hey, Eric. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. I'm going to start with you, Julie. We may only be able to scrape the service here, but please tell our listeners a little bit about Polly Murray's amazing accomplishments. You know, the most basic question, and yet when you hear it asked about Polly Murray, it's overwhelming and intimidating every time because this <laughs> single human being accomplished so many things in a lifetime that it's almost impossible to believe that it happened and that we aren't all taught Polly's name uh, in our elementary school social studies textbooks. This is someone who really came up with key legal ideas behind both uh, Brown versus Board of Education for fighting racial discrimination and the line of cases that RBG argued fighting against gender discrimination. Pauli had very innovative ideas about how the 14th Amendment could be used to secure a more just society. In addition to that, Pauli had a tremendous career uh, of activism, getting arrested for sitting in the front of a segregated bus in 1940 in Virginia, desegregating the restaurants on U Street in Washington, D.C. in 1943. Certainly not the first to fight discriminatory laws, but doing actions kind of long before the more popular movements that we read about in school. Polly was the first Black woman-identified person to be ordained as an Episcopal priest. 
Polly was a tenured professor at Brandeis. Polly was a distinguished, accomplished, unbelievably beautiful poet and memoirist. Polly wrote a book in the 1950s, a family memoir that kind of combined the tools of nonfiction research and narrative novel-like structure in a way that actually has become quite common, but was really innovative at the time Polly did it. And there's literally like 43 things that I'm now leaving out. <laughs> Dolores, do you want to add anything to that? Oh, I was just going to say to Julie that I don't envy you having to be the one to answer that question. <laughs> well, let me ask. I mean, like her life was remarkable. And yet I would guess many of our listeners never have heard of Murray before, before this. And frankly, I had not heard until last month when our producer, Kendra Klang, told me about your documentary. Julie, how did you and Betsy West, your co-director, learn about Murray? And I'll ask you too, Dolores, how, how did you mm-hmm. learn about Polly Murray? I first learned about Polly Murray through the Polly Murray Center for History and Social Justice. This was in, you know, 2013, 2014. Um, so at the time it was, it was the Polly Murray Project. So really it has grown a lot over the years. And it, you know, at the time I was a graduate student in social work school and I just remember hearing about this person, Polly Murray, and everything that they accomplished throughout the course of their lifetime and feeling, on the one hand, a sense of awe and amazement and recognition, and at the same time, really of anger and of of fury at feeling like I had been denied knowledge of this person with whom I, in some ways, shared a number of of social identities. And, you know, I think being a queer, gender nonconforming, you know, mixed race, Black person myself, we spend so much of our time in institutions. And I spent so much of my time, I mean, even in social work school, feeling very isolated and alienated and um, constantly sort of being put in the position of um, feeling as though we're this sort of like abnormality or aberration um, and that our very existence is is something to be um, debated at, at the very least, if not completely threatening at worst, and to always be kind of treated as though, you know, queer and trans people have just popped out of nowhere. And so meeting someone and learning about someone like Polly Murray for me was a reminder um, that, you know, folks like us have always been out and about and doing our thing in the world. And so, you know, it was, a, it was on the one hand, a, a moment of sort of familiarity and recognition and also of like sorrow that, um, that I had been denied that. Why was Polly Murray so overlooked? Simply because she was, uh, you know, kind of non-conforming, non- non-standard in so many ways? Yeah, I think there are a lot of reasons, and it's sometimes a little bit hard to untangle them. Certainly, I kind of think you have to start with racism and sexism. I mean, in in particular, because, um, you know, within the women's movement, uh, Polly was subject to racism. Within the civil rights movement, Polly was subject to sexism, like making elevation in those two fields um, difficult. But in addition to that, you know, Polly was so far ahead of the curve 
And sometimes that's not the way you're going to get famous. You know, we always talk about an idea whose time has come. And when you think about it, that actually implies that there is a time when the idea of time has not yet come. And Pauli Murray, again and again throughout life, was having ideas whose time had not yet come. So there wasn't necessarily a, a movement or a kind of an intellectual context for people to understand what Pauli was doing and absorb it. And Pauli was also often moving on to the next, like, you know, by the time that the civil rights movement was get it was on the news every night, Pauli became more interested in pursuing feminism, which was barely even a, a thing at that point. If you add in Pauli's gender nonconforming identity and the fact that Pauli's living in an era where a major romantic relationship and even deeper questions of Pauli's own identity could have really caused career, you know, nightmares, as well as personal danger, actually, a, a situation that all too often still exists. So, you know, that, that may have explained Pauli not always yelling as loudly as might have been warranted. I want to just touch on one thing you mentioned, um, you know, facing racism in the world at large and sexism uh, within the Black community. And uh, one of the things she did is this, uh, coined the term Jane Crow, when she was not allowed to speak at, Har at Howard University law school classes during her first year because she appeared to be a woman and she was at the only one at that time. And it was kind of shocking, but it's, as you say, uh, groundbreaking that, she, that Polly has coined this term, Jane Crow. Um, can you tell me a little bit, but you had like this wealth of documentation and archives to explore to find out about her. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and what you found? Yeah. Well, first of all, this is just another way in which Polly Murray was really innovative. Polly understood that even if the context didn't exist for all of these ideas to be get, getting out into the mainstream, that maybe someday later it would. So Polly, even in periods of life, you know, moving from place to place, kind of couch surfing with various friends, was dragging around an ever-growing, you know, pile of boxes with all of the, all of personal papers, more than 800 photographs, and uh, towards the end of Polly's life, in uh, especially in the 70s, a lot of people started to do interviews when Polly was ordained as an Episcopal priest, and it did become a bit of a news story. And Polly would double record. Polly would pull out a tape recorder, make a recording, and save it. So by the time that we came to this uh, archives in in uh, at Harvard, where Polly had made sure the stuff was all stored. There were 141 boxes just of papers, and a lot of it was quite personal, journals and notes and little scrawled things on, on drafts of, of papers, these beautiful, beautiful photographs, both of and by Polly, and uh, about 40 hours worth of audio tapes that most people would not have been saving in their lifetime. Like, like Polly was like almost like doing Instagram when Instagram <laughs> didn't exist. Like, we love, there's a part of the film where Polly in the 30s decides to ride the rails, and at some point, and this is in... I believe 1933, Polly is climbing up a boxcar and hands off a camera to a fellow hobo to take a picture of Polly. You know, like no, nobody was doing that in the 30s, but Polly was like, you know, this would be a cool uh, picture. Like today, of course, <laughs> a picture of posting it. I do want to play another clip or two from the film. So this is one uh, where the documentary shows us that Murray's childhood was difficult. Little Polly lost both parents early in life. So, uh, and she goes um, to live with Aunt Pauline. So this is a clip of that. 
Polly was the joy of the house. Aunt Pauline didn't have any children, so she doted on her. Aunt Pauline taught in the local public schools, and when I was around four, she decided to bring me with her every day. I was permitted to sit with the older children and to look on while they recited. Toward the end of the school year, Aunt Pauline was surprised when she heard me say, I can read, Aunt Pauline. I seized the book of the child next to me and began to read out loud. All the time I had been in her class, I was learning whatever she taught the others. From then on, the classroom was my second home. She was allowed to ask anything she wanted to ask. She was allowed to have an opinion. But Polly did not want to wear dresses. And Aunt Pauline used to make her go to church every Sunday. So they made a deal. She said, you can wear pants all week long. But when it comes time to go into church, you got to put on a dress. That's the voice of Karen Rouse Ross, Polly Murray's grandniece, in the new film, My Name is Polly Murray. You're hearing Out in the Bay, Queer Radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen. We're learning about the late activist, lawyer, priest, and poet Polly Murray with Dolores Chandler, former coordinator at the Polly Murray Center for History and Social Justice, and Julie Cohen, director of the documentary, My Name is Polly Murray. So Aunt Pauline was really pivotal in Murray's life, essentially and Pauline raised Murray as if her own child, right? Mm-hmm. And how did that come to how did that come to be? Polly's parents were both out of the picture. Polly's mom died when Polly was age three. Young Polly's dad had typhoid and was institutionalized. Polly's mother's sister, Aunt Pauline, first took uh, the young Polly down to North Carolina, and then ultimately did a formal adoption and really treated this amazing child with so much love and respect, calling Polly my little boy girl. I mean, these are this is the 1910s. And this amazing woman was seeing Polly for everything that the child was. I want to place this other little clip, at least part of it. We're going to hear from Rosalind Rosenberg, author of Jane Crow, The Life of Polly Murray. Murray told doctors that she appeared to be a woman but was really a man. Polly hoped that the relationship with Peggy would be a normal relationship by which Polly meant that Polly would be the man and Peggy would be the wife. And Peggy could not bring herself to see Polly as a man and eventually the relationship ended. The time that Peggy Holmes disappeared from Murray's life led to an emotional meltdown that ended with Polly being hospitalized at Bellevue Hospital. Can you tell us a little bit more about Murray's struggles? Mm. It's funny to me that we use the word struggle because Polly was always very self-possessed and I think had a very clear sense of who they were in the world. And so I think the word struggle only comes into play because the world didn't respond kindly to Polly trying to inhabit like all of who they 
were. So I think that it's something for all of us to consider um, when we're thinking about what it means for somebody to be navigating or negotiating their sexuality or their gender identity, that if the world didn't respond so harshly or violently to that, would it be as much of a struggle as it often ends up being in the course of a person's life? In other words, you're saying that Polly Murray was comfortable with themselves, but struggled with society's uh, dealing with, with them. Yeah. I think that's right. I do think it's the way that so much of society was not even engaging with it. I mean, when, when you read the letters that Pauly was writing to doctors, and this is, you know, we're talking about like 1939, like very quite, quite early when transgender was not a word that was being used. And Pauly's writing to doctors saying, could you please um, give me testosterone? I think that might help bring me into who I am. Could you, um, could you do exploratory surgery to see whether perhaps, um, Polly didn't use this word, but see whether perhaps I'm intersex. She passed about undescended, undescended testicles, testicles, right? Right, exactly. Something that, as it turned out, not to be true in Polly's case, but absolutely a medical possibility. And the doctor's response is, like, science is not in keeping with your theories Basically, we don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's hard to understand what Pauly's actual mental state was when so many people were putting this, you know, amazing intellect and someone who's just trying to be their authentic self through all of these crazy making experiences. I don't want to completely discount the notion that Pauly may have had greater mental health issues, if that is possible. But like, how can we say when like society is like thwarting somebody who who has a, such a clear path and society's kind of thwarting it at every turn? Yeah, well, that's another great example of her being so ahead of your time that Holly was asking for testosterone and the doctors are saying, well, that just, you know, that, that's just crazy. And, and um, I also want to talk a little bit about um, about uh, Polly Murray's relationship with Irene Barlow who was this uh, big figure in Murray's life and described as Murray's life partner, identified as Rini in the film. And the way the film unfolds, at least to me, it doesn't seem very clear that they've, uh, that they've moved in together, but it, it does become apparent later that they had, I guess. Uh, they always had separate residences, but they spent uh, weeks and months at a time in each other, in one another's homes. And as we show in the film, actually, certainly those that were close to them absolutely understood that they were lovers and partners. It, it was the way, you know, this was the way of the world. And that this relationship um, went from the late 50s into till Irene's death in the mid 70s. And people understood th that these two pr women presenting people w were a couple. It's just that you didn't talk about it. In the documentary, we hear both she, her, and they, them, and referring to Polly Murray. And I know I've uh, made my mistakes as we've been talking. And Polly was was a poet, a writer, a lawyer, and very particular with words. In the film, Murray, at this point, a professor, I guess this is when she's at Brandeis, is described as disagreeing with their students about using the term black with a lowercase b instead of the term Negro with a capital N. So I am curious to, what do you think Polly would have thought about they, them pronouns? Or does it matter now? <laughs> I mean, I think that to a, a lot of people it does matter, and you know, this is something that I that I talk about briefly in the in the film is that I don't know what 
pronoun Polly Murray would use or choose because, uh, you know, I also think that that is something that is so personal. And from my perspective, you know, I, um, and I love what Raquel Willis also says in the film um, when when Raquel talks about using um, they them because it, it encompasses sort of like the expansiveness of of Pauline Murray's um, gender and and I also at times I will use they them and then I will sometimes use she her I think being socialized as a woman and you know, again, toward the later end of Polly's life when um, she becomes heavily involved, you know, and, and ends up founding the National Organization for Women, that that um, lived experience is something that was, it was critical to, I think, to Polly's life and to Polly's work. And it's not something that I would um, discount. And I think that there's also it's such an interesting question about language and then the and the way that language shifts across generations. I think, you know, being a member of the queer community, I think even within this community, there are so many different sort of opinions and, and different feelings about language and the language that we use to talk about the world around us and to talk about ourselves. And so I feel like my thinking is that I'm much more interested in giving people the space to identify themselves and name themselves as opposed to making that decision for for other folks. Yeah, it's really hard with Polly Murray because there is no way to know because this was not a live debate during Polly's lifetime. And as you point out, Eric, sometimes Polly's choices about language weren't the conventional progressive choices of the time. So it could have gone in various directions. That's why actually when, when I've, you may have noticed, because sometimes I tie myself into linguistic pretzels, I really try to just call Polly Polly. That was a possibility that was, um, I sort of had this discussion with the trans rights attorney Chase Strangio of the ACLU, who's actually in the film. And before the interview, I was like, what do you do about pronouns? And he said, you know, some trans people use their name as their pronoun. And that immediately kind of struck a good chord because Polly is actually a name that Polly chose. Um, mm-hmm. This is someone named Anna Pauline Murray at birth, who quite early in life, I believe it was in college, latched onto the name Polly and really used it pretty steadily. I mean, yes, there were occasional times where Polly, as we point out in the film, was saying Pete, and actually even used, the, apparently went by the name Oliver on a trip at a certain point. But that said, Polly was was a was a selected name. It's also kind of a great name. It's fairly expansive uh, gender-wise. So it's like, but, you know, that said, I think, you know, I certainly understand why those who knew Polly in life and always knew this person as a woman call Polly she, her. And I certainly understand um, for a lot of trans and non-binary people today who are looking back into history for someone that like, oh my God, I'm so connecting to this person whose story I've been denied for so long and like using they, them kind of helps helps to claim that. So I'm not sure why people begrudge that so much, but some of them do. 
our time is coming to a close, unfortunately, and we haven't even gotten to the bit about Eleanor Roosevelt and their friendship that they had for so long, which is a, 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 an important part of the film. I'm going to encourage people to watch this film. There's so much in there. There's just so much packed in. I'm, I'm just, it's, it's amazing. Um, but I do want to ask you one more thing in closing, and that is, you know, what, what inspired you to produce a documentary on Polly Murray's life and story now? And what do you hope viewers learn from it? We were moved to make the Pauli Murray doc actually stemming directly from our RBG film. It was uh, RBG's, as we, as we mentioned in this film, RBG put Pauli's name on the first brief uh, she ever wrote for the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in, the, in the 1970s, not because in 71, not because Pauli had worked on that brief specifically, but because she had developed the idea that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment should apply to gender equality as well as racial equality. A huge leap forward, a ball that RBG took and ran with, and it feels very funny to use a football analogy and thinking about tiny little Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but be that as it may. Um, You know, I think we hope people take away so so many pieces of Pauli's story that one could find meaningful. There are there are so many slices of this story that to, to love and attach to, but maybe even more than that, looking at maybe looking at U.S. history in different ways. I think our solution, we aren't thinking like, oh, if we just like added two pages of Polly Murray and glued them into like the history books, like then everything would be fine. Like the fact that this story hasn't been told enough, although there are certainly many scholars, uh, protect, protect, particularly women of color scholars who've been studying Polly for decades, um, but the fact that Polly is in, in our history books isn't uh, a, a lone omission. Like there's so much talk now about how we're h- how we should be rethinking history, and Polly Murray just seems like a, a, a stellar example of what we what we lose when we miss out on his, key historical figures. I would also add that um, again. I, I agree. There's so much that. <laughs> that um you know i think i would love for folks to take away um from learning about Polly murray but i think in this in this moment it feels um i think connected to you know thinking about who it is that contributes to our collective history but it, that you know Polly murray's um experience of, you know, being gender nonconforming and experience as, you know, a mixed race black person and experience as um, somebody who's, who is socialized as a woman in the world, like all of, all of those experiences um, were things that informed, very deeply informed Polly Murray's, you know, legal thinking, academic thinking, and, you it paints a really incomplete picture to um fragment human beings into these you know two-dimensional um sort of lives because there's so much more um to our thinking about the world and and i think that the parts of of Polly murray's story um that have gotten left out are, are parts of the story that I think are actually critical to everything that Polly has contributed to the world. Dolores and Julie, I want to thank you so much for joining me. How can our listeners find the film, My Name is Polly Murray, and watch it? 
They can watch it on Amazon Prime. And we will also have a link to it on our site. You've been listening to Out in the Bay. My guests were Dolores Chandler, former coordinator at the Polly Murray Center for History and Social Justice, and Julie Cohen, director of the documentary, My Name is Polly Murray, along with Betsy West. The documentary is very rich. There's so much more that we could cover in a half hour. We'll post links to My Name is Polly Murray and the Polly Murray Center for History and Social Justice on our website. Look for the links in our post for this week's show on outinthebay.org. That's outinthebay.org. Out in the Bay, queer radio and podcast is nonprofit and independent. That means we receive no funding from podcast platforms, NPR, nor the radio stations that air our program weekly. We rely on listeners. If you can afford to chip in, we'd greatly appreciate a year-end gift. Just click any donate button on our site, outinthebay.org. It would help us be able to keep bringing queer air to your ears and to others who need to hear it and may not be able to donate. And it's tax deductible. Yep, the feds will subsidize your gift to Out in the Bay. So please, just click any donate button on our site, outinthebay.org. That's outinthebay.org. You'll feel good, and so will we. That's outinthebay.org. You can hear recent shows there, too. We've posted more than 40 this year alone. And you can subscribe to podcasts and our occasional email newsletter so you won't miss new episodes. That's outinthebay.org. I'm Eric Jansen. Kendra Klang produces and Christopher Beale edits Out in the Bay. We thank you so much for listening and for your support. Happy holidays and best wishes from all of us here at Out in the Bay. Outinthebay.org. 